Exodus chapter 8. This evening we come to uh, verses 20 through 32. And the fourth plague that God brings upon the people of Egypt. Uh, Remember, we've just seen the land of Egypt attacked by gnats. Uh, The very dust of the ground was transformed into biting insects. But we also saw that Pharaoh has dug in his heels and he will not let the people of God go. And so following the pattern thus far, God increases the intensity of the plagues up another notch. Now he doesn't immediately move to the tenth plague. God is being patient. He is providing warnings and giving Pharaoh and all of Egypt plenty of opportunity to repent and to let God's people go. But each time they spurn his warnings, the next plague that comes is more severe than the ones before it. And so here in the fourth plague, we find that God afflicts the land with flies. So let's read this passage beginning in verse 20. Verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with the swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there so that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. And then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go. I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Let's make six observations about this fourth plague. Six observations about this first plague. First, this plague is the first in a new cycle of plagues. This fourth plague is the first in a new cycle of plagues. You see, 
the ten plagues are actually three sets of three followed by the tenth and climactic final plague. Uh, The first three plagues afflicted the comfort of the Egyptians. Uh, Likely, no one has gotten sick or died yet from any of the plagues thus far. Even the livestock and the crops have fared through the first three plagues. Uh, Trust me, these first three plagues, they were very annoying. And the third plague did include people getting bitten by gnats. But we do not get the sense that any lasting harm has been done by the first three plagues. All of that now begins to change. We know from Psalm 78 that these swarms of flies did real harm. Uh, We read there that the swarms of flies devoured the people. And so whether it was through biting or by the sheer nature of their swarms, it is clear that these flies were not just annoying. They were destructive. In the next plague, livestock is going to die. In the sixth plague, the people of Egypt are going to break out in boils and in sores. And so you see, we've moved from discomfort to actual injury and actual harm. The first three plagues placed God against the magicians of Pharaoh. Each time, the magicians would try and imitate what God had done. But we saw in the third plague this morning that the magicians can no longer compete. They have declared that they have lost, that this is a power beyond them. Now in these next three plagues, the magicians are out of the picture. They've been soundly defeated. It's interesting, both the first cycle of plagues and the second uh, cycle of plagues begins the same way. So remember, the very first plague, the water being turned to blood, it all began when Pharaoh had come down to the river. He may have been going to the Nile to wash in its waters or to worship the Nile God, but for whatever reason, Pharaoh was at the Nile River, and all of a sudden, here comes Moses, and he confronts Pharaoh there at the river concerning the first plague. Well, now some time has passed since the first three plagues, and maybe Pharaoh is beginning to think that he has dodged a bullet. Maybe he's thinking, I made it through the plagues. They've, they've passed, and, we've, and we Egyptians, we've survived. And on this day, he goes down to the Nile, and just like before, here comes Moses on the horizon with a new announcement. The whole scene is being replayed, and you can just sense Pharaoh thinking, oh no, not again, here we go again. Um, when I was a Teenager, I remember riding a particular ride at a small amusement park in Panama City, Florida. And the ride had us going round and round and round at a very fast speed, and I began to feel very sick. All I wanted was to get off of that ride. And my stomach was churning, and my heart was beating fast, and things were feeling pretty bad, and I was clenching the bars with white knuckles, and I'm just praying, Lord, make this ride stop, make this ride stop, make it stop. And finally, to my great relief, the ride stopped. But they didn't stop to let us off. They stopped because now it was time to go backwards. And to my horror, we began rapidly going round and round and round in reverse, and things had gotten worse, and my supper was coming back up. 
Pharaoh's first ride through the plagues has come to an end. And he might have thought, I made it through. I'm in the clear. But God isn't letting him off yet. There is still more to come. And now everything just intensifies. And so Pharaoh, they're at the river again. And here comes Moses again. And there's this sinking feeling, surely, in his stomach. Second, the flies were everywhere. The flies were everywhere. So this was a a plague again in which all of Egypt was affected. Our passage says it this way. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. So these flies are everywhere in the houses and all across the land. Uh, Doug Stewart says, The ruin here described was not topological, but rather referred to quality of life. The people couldn't eat without ingesting flies. They couldn't sleep without flies covering their bodies. They couldn't work for having to swat flies. Their skin was welted with fly bites. And so uh, he argues it was the quality of their life that was now ruined by these flies. It was a terrible plague. Third, Beginning with this plague, God makes a division between the Egyptians and the Israelites. God makes a division. Uh, This is the first time that we are told that God plagued the Egyptians, but spared his own people from the plague. And from this point forward, this is going to be God's way. The harm that God is going to bring upon the Egyptians will not come upon the Israelites. This is being done out of God's love and protection of his people. But it's also being done as a sign to Pharaoh. God says, on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Think about what that was like for these Egyptians struggling with all these flies as they saw that the people of Israel and Goshen, they were fine. I mean, certainly word had to be all over the nation about this, right? Right? Here we are suffering and our slaves, I hear them, they're camped over in Goshen. They can't, a fly can't be found. What are we to make of this? This was a bold statement that the true God, Yahweh, the God of these plagues, is indeed the God of Israel. Egypt may be greater in might and military force, but Israel's God is far superior to any false deity of the Egyptians. And so in this plague, God continues to display his awesome power. God tells Pharaoh through Moses, tomorrow this sign shall happen. It's like when Babe Ruth came up to the plate in the 1932 World Series at Wrigley Field in Chicago. And the famous story says that he pointed his bat towards the center field bleachers, calling his shot. He was declaring what he was going to do before he did it. And then the pitch came, and sure enough, the home run was hit right where Babe Ruth had said that it would go. It's one thing to be able to hit a home run. But being able to hit a home run at will, without even knowing what the next pitch will be, and to declare where you are going to hit it, this is part of why Babe Ruth became such a legend. 
Well, what we have in this passage is God calling his shots before they happen. Not only does he declare what will happen ahead of time, but he also declares when it will happen tomorrow. And more than that, he even declares who will be affected and who will not be affected. Uh, The Egyptians will be affected. The Israelites will not. Mount Hermon, you do know that flies don't care what ethnicity you are, right? Flies don't approach people and think, is this an Egyptian or an Israelite, right? That's not the way flies work. What we have here is the awesome power of God to direct these flies where he wills, when he wills, however he wills. Fourth observation. Pharaoh tried to bargain with God. And prepare yourself, we're going to see this again in future plagues. Pharaoh tried to bargain with God. Can I just tell you that's always a bad idea. Rather than submitting to God's will, Pharaoh sought to wrangle with the Almighty. Pharaoh made an offer, right? He would let the people of God offer their sacrifices to God in Egypt. But of course, this offer was refused. Both Moses and Pharaoh are well aware of what is really going on here. If the Israelites leave, they're not coming back. Pharaoh must either submit to them by letting them go, or he will be judged by God. Um, Have you ever tried to bargain with God? God, if you'll give me that promotion, you'll just get it for me. I'll do this for you. God, if, if you'll make the test results come back negative, I'll double my offering next month. The problem with this is that the moment you try and bargain with God, you're acting as if you and him are on some sort of equal plane. None of us are in any position to wrangle with the Almighty. What God desires from us is that we humble ourselves like little children. If only Pharaoh had come before God with empty hands saying, I surrender, you are God, I am a creature, I submit to you, he would have found God to be a welcoming, loving, uh, wonderful God. God doesn't need anything from us. Understanding that we are completely dependent upon him for life and breath and everything. We are to cry out to Him, bring our petitions to Him, submit ourselves and our needs to Him. Bargaining with God will never work. It's it's an offense. It's rooted in pride. Well, the flies become too much, and Pharaoh cracks, and he agrees to let the people of God go. But he's not yet fully cracked. He's not broken He's still acting as if he has some power in all this. And so he says to Moses, only you must not go very far away. So he's still not yet at the place of full submission. Uh, He's been deeply affected, so much so that he asked Moses to plead to Moses God specifically for him. But he hasn't come to the place of repentance yet. Now, fifth observation. Moses was willing to plead with God for Pharaoh in Egypt. Moses was willing to plead with God for Pharaoh in Egypt. When you think about that, it is actually quite astounding. What motivation does Moses have to plead before God 
for the flies to be taken away from Pharaoh and from Egypt. The fact is, the longer the flies are there, the more these folks are being defeated. There are no flies in Goshen. Israel isn't being affected. Why not just let the flies stay until Egypt becomes so paralyzed and Pharaoh so demoralized that the Israelites can just walk away? What motivation does Moses have to pray for God to take away the flies? Well, certainly Moses is following the plan of God here. God has already told Moses about the tenth and final plague that is coming, the death of the firstborns. We've read that earlier when God revealed to Moses that that plague is coming. So, so Moses knows that there's more to come. Likely there is a sense in which he is, he is simply trying to be faithful in playing his role in this unfolding drama. But more than that, I think what we see here is real compassion, even towards Pharaoh and even towards the Egyptians. Maybe it's significant that the Pharaoh is Moses' adopted grandfather. I don't know. Um, This is the father of the Egyptian princess who rescued Moses and adopted Moses. Maybe for his own adopted mother's sake, Moses feels compassion towards this Egyptian king who is now asking him to plead for him before God. Certainly the Egyptians, blinded by their idolatry, their suffering. Moses sees their suffering. I mentioned earlier that our God is a God that does not delight in judgment. Ezekiel 18.23, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and would not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Pharaoh has taken a first step towards repentance. It's a little step. He's still trying to bargain with God, but but at least he said, I'll let them go if they don't go too far. And and Moses, would you please plead to your God for me? And, And Moses' response is, to give Pharaoh every opportunity to do the right thing. That said, we also must remember this is the second time that Pharaoh has promised to let God's people go. And so Moses does warn Pharaoh not to cheat again. Moses is hopeful, but he's also a realist. He knows what just happened before. And so Moses warns Pharaoh that that if God lifts this plague, he must let the people go. And then in his compassion and in his care, Moses pleads with God to remove the plague. And the flies are gone, so much so that not one can be found in the land. Well, you know what our next observation is. Sixth, Pharaoh hardened his heart yet again. It is simply astounding how we as human beings can experience so much of God's goodness and grace and mercy and still harden ourselves against Him. How many have had the privilege of hearing the good news of Jesus again and again, but have refused to turn from their sin and follow Him? How many have been spared from terrible accidents or have been healed when doctors expected no healing? only to go on living in stubbornness and rebellion towards God. 
this very moment, God is lavishing every one of us in this room with many gifts. Your very life, your breath, your strength, your privilege of being here this evening in God's special presence, hearing the greatest truths in the world being preached. You are being blessed by a merciful God. The second is your heart hardened against him. Would you still refuse to humble yourself and submit to a God who is so good and so wise? Now we've seen that each of these plagues is an attack on an Egyptian God. And while many of the Egyptian gods are being assaulted by each plague, I've been trying to show one particular God for each plague that's being revealed as a fraud. As we've said, God is dethroning Egyptian gods proving that he's the true God in plague after plague. So which particular God is being assaulted here? Well, perhaps more than any other plague, scholars are a bit divided about which God is most in God's sights. There is a very old theory that says that the flies in this plague were ichneumon flies. I have no idea if I said that right. I-C-H-N- E-U-M-O-N, ichneumon flies. But these are flies that deposit their eggs on other living things. And so if these flies, which are found in Egypt, were the flies in question, they truly would have made life very miserable for the Egyptians. These particular flies were thought to be a manifestation of a god called Uachit. And so some think that this plague is meant to reveal that Yahweh and not Uachit controls the Ichneumon flies. Even more interesting, there are some who suggest that these flies were not flies as we think of them at all, but that this Hebrew word refers to swarms of flying scarab beetles. You see, the word fly isn't actually in the Hebrew. Uh, Only the word swarms is there. Most scholars assume that these are swarms of flies, and Psalm 78 seems to indicate that these were flies, but but this word could refer to other flying things, like, for example, the flying scarab beetle. And the reason that scholars think that is these scarabs were held in very high esteem by the Egyptians. Not just thousands, but millions of amulets and stamped Not just thousands, but millions of amulets and stamped seals of stone were fashioned in Egypt depicting the scarab beetle. So have you ever seen the mummy movies? These scarab beetles have big roles in in those mummy movies. If those folks are right, then uh, this attack is probably an attack on the Egyptian god Kapura, which was actually a form of the Egyptian god Re. Uh, The Egyptian god Re, the sun god, uh, could take the form of Kapura, which referred to the god of the rising sun. You see, the scarab beetles in Egypt are actually dung beetles. And these beetles are often seen rolling a ball of dung in front of them. They lay their eggs in this ball of dung, and then the newly hatched larvae eat the ball of dung for their first meal. The Egyptians saw these beetles rolling these balls of dung and made a connection between them and the sun in the sky, which disappears at night, but somehow is brought back up the next morning. And they assumed, well, it must be a scarab beetle god 
Kapura, who is the god who makes sure that the sun gets rolled back up in the morning. Now, those are just a few options, um, but there is another view. It's perhaps the most common and I think the most interesting. The other possibility is that this plague of flies was directed against a god known most often as Beelzebub. Uh, Beelzebub. Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. You know the name Baal, right? Baal, Baal. Uh, Baal appears often in the Old Testament. Uh, the Israelites in Canaan are going to be constantly tempted to worship Baal. Baal was an important Assyrian god, the god of storms, the god of war, the god of violence. In Egypt, they had their own god of storms and violence. His name was Seth. And there was a lot of interaction going on between Canaan and Egypt uh, through trade, for example. At various times, Canaan was actually conquered by Egypt. And during this moment in time at which the book of Exodus is taking place, Canaan actually is paying tribute to Pharaoh in Egypt. And so the result of this is that the Egyptians and the Canaanites basically brought these two gods together, Baal and Seth. They realized we're using two different names for the same kind of god. And so they brought them together, Baal-Seth. And it became the term that we now know as Beelzebub or Beelzebul, Lord of the Flies. Philip Ryken says some Egyptians worshipped Beelzebub as their protector. And as their guardian. And since this God's role was to protect their land from swarms of flies and other natural disasters, he functioned as a sort of insurance policy. But like the rest of Egypt's gods and goddesses, Beelzebub actually was a tool of the devil. This is confirmed by the Gospel of Luke, in which Beelzebub is, de- is identified as indeed the prince of demons. And so Beelzebub was one representation of Satan's power over Egypt. Remember, every one of these false gods is an expression of Satan's power over Egypt. Moses says in Deuteronomy that to worship these false gods was to worship demons. And so here, God brings about this fourth plague to show that it is he who is the true Lord of the flies. God alone controls all insects. He alone can protect against all natural disasters. Beelzebub is nothing compared to Yahweh. Okay? Now we come to the prophetic lesson. The prophetic lesson of this passage. We've already seen that the book of Revelation draws from these plagues to help us understand what we should expect from God in these last days. And just as these plagues were smaller judgments that increased in severity, all leading to a great final judgment, so we are in a day of plagues on this earth, all warning us of a greater judgment to come. Well, the prophetic message of this plague is that in these last days, God will use even insects and other creatures to bring us warnings of the great judgment day ahead. God will use even insects and other creatures. So, for example, we mentioned this morning Revelation 6, verse 8, which says this, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And so every time we hear of people's lives, 
being disrupted by people becoming sick or even dying because of mosquitoes or flies or locusts or other creatures like that. Which remember that this has been promised to us and that this is a warning to us as a human race of the greater judgment to come. The call of each one of these plagues is for us not to harden our heart against God, but to humble ourselves before the true and the Almighty One. Well, finally, as we continue thinking about God's purposes in these plagues, I want to mention a fourth purpose, and it's this. God decreed these plagues to teach God's protection of his people. To teach his protection of his people. From this plague forward, where real harm is being done, we are going to see a protective bubble around Goshen and the people of Israel. And we are to learn from this that God truly does protect his people. In this life, if you're a Christian, you are under the protection of God. Now, we are not protected from every earthly harm. We are not protected from every disease or disaster or mishap. Sometimes in the good sovereignty of God, He chooses for those things to come into our lives. But God does indeed protect His people from anything that would bring true and ultimate harm to them. Anything that is not ultimately for our good is kept away from us. Even our trials and our tribulations are carefully measured out by God so that they serve our souls and will never destroy us. Paul said, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Christ is the good shepherd, and he will not let his sheep be harmed. Dear Christian, do you know how much your father loves you? Are you aware of how truly safe and secure you are in his loving care? Good fathers protect their children from harm, and our God does this for us. Remember how Peter describes us in 1 Peter 1.5. We saw it this morning where it says that by God's power we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our God is protecting us, guarding us, safekeeping us by sustaining our faith and refusing to let us utterly fall away. God protects his children, body and soul, only allowing those temptations and sufferings that he has deemed to be good for us as he fits us for heaven. Our God protects us with his awesome power and with his awesome wisdom. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Have you ever thought about the fact that one of the great purposes of angels is to fulfill God's will in protecting his children? Oh yes, there are demonic forces in this world, demonic forces that would seek to do you harm, but your Lord Jesus is the Lord of hosts. And who are these hosts that he's the Lord of? It's the myriads upon myriads of angels who do the bidding of Jesus Christ to protect his people. Jesus is the captain of the Lord's armies. The armies of angels 
It's astounding. You remember how God opened the eyes of Elisha's servant so that he could see the great army of angels that was protecting God's people. Psalm 34 verse 1 gives us the picture of angels pitching their tents around God's people, encircling them, protecting them, guarding them from enemies. In Daniel 9, we see God's angels at work to answer the prayers of God's children. God saw and he heard the prayers of Daniel, and the angel Gabriel was dispatched to accomplish God's response. In fact, in Luke 16, Jesus speaks of angels coming to a believer at death to usher his soul into the very presence of God. When Jesus was near death himself, in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told there were angels there to uphold him and to strengthen him. Mount Hermon, your father is protecting you in ways you can't even see against dangers you don't fully understand or know. Israel's keeper does not slumber and he does not sleep. His ever watchful protective eye is always alert for any sign of spiritual harm. When we come to the day of judgment and the bow of God's wrath is bent back and ready to be released, we will find that we are protected by His loving care. We will walk through the judgment of God untouched, and we will enter into glory. This is the joy of belonging to God. This is the joy of being counted as one of God's people. Uh, Let me ask it this way. Are you an Israelite, or are you an Egyptian? Are you under the protective care of God? Or are you left to the judgment of God? Every one of us deserves the wrath of God. If you could see your sin aright, you would not blame God one moment for his acts of wrath. If you were to see your sin the way God sees your sin, you would simply marvel at how patient and how kind he has been. You and I deserve the wrath of God, but God has made the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we'll end this way. Are you in Christ Jesus? Have you been united to Him by humbling yourself before the King of kings, bowing to Him and saying, You are my Lord. You are my Savior. I place my confidence in You and I give You my allegiance. Jesus Christ will bring his people safely through every plague into the promised land that we call heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.